Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI, the most trusted voice in healthcare, committed to advancing effective, evidence-based care. I'm your host, Paul Anderson, and for more than 10 years, I've overseen our patient safety, risk, and quality membership programs here at ECRI. Tens of thousands of healthcare leaders rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of care across all healthcare settings worldwide. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes at www.ecri.org. Today, we're taking another look at shortages in the healthcare workforce. Healthcare has faced workforce shortages in the past, and even before the COVID-19 pandemic made things even worse, the American Nurses Association and the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics forecast the retirement of more than half a million registered nurses by the end of 2022. Our guests today are Claire Zangerly, Chief Nurse Executive of Allegheny Health Network in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Aaron Toth, Nurse Manager of Five North at Jefferson Hospital, also part of the Allegheny Health Network. Claire, I'd like to start with you. And you know, when we think about healthcare workforce shortages and specifically nursing shortages, I know that you've been um, leading development of a, nurse, of a staffing model that we've called blended staffing. So can you describe a little bit about what that is? Sure, thanks, Paul. Thanks for having Aaron and I today. Um, we're excited to talk about um, some of the innovative things that we're doing um, during the most challenging time of my nursing career, um, which is during this uh, staffing challenge. So, you know, um, even before the pandemic, as you said, we were um, faced with, with um, staffing shortages, but, there, but nothing compared to what we have now. Before the nursing short, before the pandemic, I was um, underwater by about 250 nurses. Today, I'm underwater around 1,200. I would gladly go back to those days when it was 250. So coming to uh, the table with creative solutions has been a very um, high focus for us. And one of those solutions that we've come up with, and we actually even started this before the pandemic because it was an opportunity for us, is bringing LPNs back to acute care. Uh, back in the day, um, in the, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, we, put, we said, LPNs, thank you for your service. Go ahead and go to the LTACs, go to rehabs, go to post-acute care because you know what? We've got it here from here with the RNs at the bedside. A lot of it had to do with magnet designation and magnet saying you had to have BSNs at the bedside. And yes, there is evidence. And we, we believe that, that in that evidence that having BSNs at the bedside is absolutely better for quality, safety, and efficiency. However, in light of the, the shortages of nurses, we look to a blended model. And now some of us may remember this as team nursing. And there, there's not much of a difference. We just rebranded it into blended nursing because we feel blended is a better description of the team. And for us, blended nursing is utilization of a registered nurse as a team leader, an LPN as a, a member of the team, and a nursing assistant slash patient care technician as a member of the team as well. So that team takes on a cohort of patients and support each other as they're supporting those patients um, at the bedside um, in their unit. Um, there's really not a big difference between team nursing and blended nursing, but I can tell you with the different generations of nurses that we have, if I said team nursing to one group of nurses, they'd be like, yeah, we've done that for years. 
blended nursing is new to a different generation of nurses, but, but essentially they're the same thing. And it's all about the teamwork. And I think that's the essential piece of this entire model. I wonder if we take a quick step back, Ashley, just for a moment. And I wonder if you could define briefly uh, for our audience who may not know, what is the difference between a, a BSN, you know, a registered nurse and an LPN? So a bachelor's prepared nurse is a nurse who's had um, uh, more education, uh, more formal education. They have a four-year degree. A licensed practical nurse has um, more technical training, um, and it's a certification and a licensure um, in that vein. Um, there's, there's no associate's degree or bachelor's degree um, uh, connected with that. Um, and um, I guess the LPN, you could say, is is right between the skill set of a nursing assistant and a registered nurse. And they have every state an LPN has scope of practice. And across the nation, those scopes of practices are very different. We focus because our footprint is in Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, and a little bit north of us. And, and even into Western New York, we focused on scopes of practice for that those areas so that we knew what an LPN could and could not do within their scope of practice. So they're very different disciplines, but they certainly complement each other. And another reason that we focused on LPNs is because we weren't getting enough nursing assistance. We had to relieve the workload of the registered nurse. And by introducing that LPN back into acute care, that also helped relieve some of the pressure on the nurse to get every single thing done. And, you know, allow our nurses, our registered nurses, to practice at the top of their license. Yeah, you anticipated a couple of my questions there. I was going to ask about um, you know, the, the scope of, of LPNs really being set at the state level. And, and so, um, you know, and you mentioned that. And, and the phrase that I was thinking of the more you were talking was that concept of, of practicing at the top of their license. And so I guess my question is, you know, when you're, when you've got um, this, this team of RNs and LPNs and nurse assistants who are working together, um, other than what's defined by by state, um, you know, scope of practice regulations. Obviously, those those are what they are, and we we have to work with them. Are there other sort of um, non-negotiable elements to how that teamwork is split up that you sort of say, okay, even um, no matter what else happens, this is something that I need an RN to be doing, whether it's for a safety reason or something else. Well, I can tell you from a conceptual uh, perspective, yeah. and Aaron can tell you from a lived experience perspective. So from a conceptual perspective, um, registered nurses, we had to teach a lot of our registered nurses delegation skills. What do they give up to allow the LPN to do? And what can they trust the LPN to do within their scope of practice? So delegation skills were very important conceptually to teach along with the scope of practice and um, teamwork and how to work together as a team. But in terms of lived experiences, I'm gonna pitch that to Erin because she's the one who's really done most of this work. I'm just the one with the idea. She's the one who executed. <laughs> yeah, so um, bringing on LPNs, um, the first uh, barrier that we faced was what can they, what can they do? Um, it was something that not 
too many people were familiar with working with them. And um, just as we, from a management perspective, are encouraging teamwork um, to our staff, I had to resource out to other managers within the network that have LPNs to figure out what can you know my new staff do. So I worked with um, uh, our emergency room, another local hospital that had some LPNs to start getting um, scope of practice and where they were utilizing them and figuring out how we could implement them into um, imp implement that scope of practice into what works best on our unit. So that was definitely the first barrier for us was like we have these brand new sets of hands that we haven't had before. Um, they can definitely do more than the nursing assistant, but, you know, um, working with an admission or what can they do on it? And when a patient gets admitted to the hospital, there are certain things they can and can't do. What are they? Um, blood administration, are they allowed to co-sign blood products? Because that's something that we have a double check for a lot of the things that we do. Uh, where does that fall? And so those are things on the fly that our staff was, you know, wanting to delegate and wanting to work as a team, but, you know, we had to establish and really learn what they could do for us. And I can tell you that a true non-negotiable, and Erin knows this because she lived this, was communication. Mm -hmm. You have to communicate with each right. of your team members because they work together as an orchestra. And if they're not communicating, if their instruments aren't playing together, then the patient's not going to get what they need. And there's going to be high frustration on the part of each of those team members. So that, if you ask for one non-negotiable, that's it. 100%. Aaron, you mentioned sort of an initial challenge of just figuring out what can these LPNs do, right, um, as they come on to be part of the team. What are some other barriers that you ran into, whether you anticipated them or, or maybe some surprises that you, that you got to experience along the way? Sure, yeah. Change in the nursing world, and it's probably everywhere else, is just, just a not good topic. Nobody likes change, right? So when I go into a staffing meeting, I say, hey, we're rolling out this new blended program. I'm so excited. The eyes roll. <laughs> and and it, it is, it's hard. So you really have to be behind it. And, you know, I really looked for my key players that I have certain uh, staff members that are they have my back no matter what. And then what was really nice is I had a nurse that had just finished her bachelor's degree and she had just done studies on blended nursing and was so excited because it's right, you know, right out of school. And she knew she's like, I, I just learned about this. This is so awesome. So really having those cheerleaders helped. Um, you really, you really struggle with the ones that are like, ah, we've done this before. We tried something like this. And so um, really being positive and continuing to, you know, sometimes it's baby steps. It's starting with a really, really, really small changes. And that's where we found, you know, we, we rolled out this, this big thing and this is what we're going to do. We're dividing into teams and you're going to tackle these patients and you're going to handle these patients. And, um, it was too much too fast. And so we, we backpedaled a little and we really started with, okay, the first thing we're going to do is you as a team are going to establish when you're going to lunch because that's evidence-based practice. When you get a break and you physically can walk off the floor, you come back refreshed and you deliver better patient care. And that's nursing. Everything we do is based off of evidence-based practice. Nursing is a practice. It's not black and white. So we have to look to, to always in the research. And that's something that's proven all the time that when you get that break, it makes a difference. Um, we started there and I would notice because that's something that we track is, you know, they have the opportunity to um, delegate or, or explain that they didn't get a lunch for their shift. Uh, 
I watch those start to dwindle down within my timekeeping that, hey, everyone's going to lunch. This is nice. And then that the staff started to catch on like, hey, I, I went to lunch every day this week. So very, very small things. And that's really what started to unwind is, you know, they had to buy into what we were selling essentially. So you I'd say another barrier, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt Paul, but I, I'd say another barrier for us beyond what Erin uh, explained, which she explained it very well, and even some, some ways to combat those barriers are um, compensation. LPNs make a lot of money outside of acute care, and we were not competing with the hourly rate, and we're still not at 100% there. A lot of our LPNs come and say, you know what, I could work for an LTAC for a couple of bucks more an hour, but I want to be in acute care. Hmm. You know, most of our post-acute care partners are for-profit uh, facilities, and sometimes an LPN is the highest level of clinician on a right. shift. So, of course, they're going to pay them that. So a barrier for us um, organizationally was um, reviewing the compensation model for LPNs. And the, another barrier was the skepticism of LPNs actually believing that we were going to invite them back into acute care and make them part of the team. Because for so many years, the door, that door had been closed. And um, you know, once the word got out, that that started to happen. And actually, we've even used our agency partners to help us identify LPNs who might want to come back into acute care. And not every region in the country has access to LPNs. Western Pennsylvania is blessed with a lot of LPN um, schools, so we are able to source those. This summer, we have 144 LPNs coming in to do clinical rotations in our hospitals. So if we don't hire them, we're going to push them to our narrow network post-acute care partners for staff to staff those mm -hmm. so that we can have a lower length of stay because our barrier to our length of stay is not is our post-acute partners not having staff. And if LPNs can help with that, then that's great. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that, that sort of connectedness of the whole system, right? That's a true health system. That for makes sure. a lot of sense, yeah. Um, you mentioned, Aaron, noticing that, you know, people were all of a sudden really consistently able to take lunch. Um, that sounds like a really nice win that's, that's you know, has a tie back to, to patient outcomes as well. What were some yeah. other wins that you were able to realize? Uh, maybe, especially ones that yeah, maybe you didn't expect. Yeah, so really what I was not expecting and Claire touched on it, um, having that um, assistant staff, the nursing assistants, the care technicians, really took a down to patients and the staff work alongside each other. Have you found as you've implemented this process that there are some areas or units of a hospital that are more amenable to a blended approach versus others? Um, so I actually, prior to taking this management role, I worked as uh, the manager of hospital operations for three and a half years. And so that's essentially the supervisor that walks around and makes sure that, you know, everyone's ducks are in a row. A professional fire putter outer is what I call <laughs> myself. So, you know, you handle the things, but then it always kind of kicks back to that manager. So um, I really have had the opportunity to see the, the differences in all the units and how they work. And really what I love about 
this blended nursing and what I found is it's not a one size fits all. It, it has to work this way approach. When, once you take it in, you just really figure out how it works for your unit. So I really, really think that this could be beneficial everywhere. And that really going into it is understanding that it's not going to look the same. Five North is not going to perform the same as the, you know, intensive care unit that it's just not, you know, but if you, you take those keys that, you know, making sure people are getting breaks, making sure we're talking, making sure we're checking in with each other. Um, it really will work anywhere. Claire, earlier on, you talked about the role and the impact of LPN staffing and, and uh, having to do with magnet designation. I wonder if you could sort of um, expand a little bit on that and, and what is that role? What is that impact? And, you know, are there concerns you had uh, as you were developing this process with, um, with the increase in the numbers of LPNs and how that would affect the magnet designation. Yeah, so I wasn't so concerned about um, introducing LPNs and it having an effect on our magnet um, designation, whether we had we, whether we were an already uh, designated hospital, we were on the journey, or we were thinking about getting on the journey, and only because of this, because no matter the discipline that we have to help the nurse at the bedside, the, the evidence and, the, and the, the evidence that we use to meet the standards of magnet are, are still going to be met. And using, uh, using any discipline that's going to help the nurse practice at their top of their license, that's going to help us. It's not going to take anything away from, uh, from the value that we bring uh, to the magnet process. Um, I know that that is a huge concern of many people, but if you get down to the brass tacks, you have somebody to help you do your work so that you can practice at the top of your license, which is always um, an element of, of magnet designation. One of the things that we've looked at a lot at ECRI and the ISMP Patient Safety Organization over the last year or more now is as we focus on um, you know, reducing uh, inequities and disparities in care. Um, one of the topics that keeps coming up is making sure that we have a workforce that represents the communities we're serving in, um, that is, you know, representing all those same um, uh, different groups in our community. And I wonder if, you know, bringing back the LPNs into the acute care workforce, if that helps to make the workforce, you know, more diverse and more accurately reflect the community that you're, that you're serving in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what we've seen is that the cost of nursing school is sometimes prohibitive for anybody. Um, and we're certainly seeing that in our marginalized populations in our neighborhoods um, where people who would love to go to college won't have that opportunity. But this is a path. It's an entry level. And um, LPN programs are affordable and they're, and they're funded um, with scholarships and um, you can get loan, uh, federal loans, all kinds of things, much like you can nursing, but just the population that we're talking about, the diverse population, are attract, they are attracted to um, getting in, getting the, getting the degree, uh, or getting the licensure, and starting work, and that's necessary. Yes, that is also, that's a collateral benefit for us to diversify our population of employees at AHN, because Honestly, across the country, there's not enough diversity in healthcare. There's not diverse, enough diversity in physicians, in nurses, 
in any discipline of healthcare, and there must be that diversity because we all know from evidence that outcomes are better if somebody who you take who takes care of you looks like you, and um, and understands your your personal beliefs, and I, and that is so important, and that's kind of the hope for our collateral benefit of this program as well. You know, we've talked at a couple of different points uh, throughout the conversation about the importance of evidence, right? And whether it's something about the evidence for uh, the importance of a, a staff that looks like the patient population they're serving, whether it's the importance of taking that lunch break and coming back refreshed and, and able to really focus on the work at hand. I wonder if you've seen any evidence um, as, as you've moved to this, to this uh, staffing model that really shows um, that it's having the impact you want it to have, whether it's on uh, safety outcomes or you know, employee satisfaction or any of those, those measures that you might be looking at to say, yeah, okay, we, we know this is doing what we want it to do. Yeah, so um, I actually, we, we partner with Press Ganey as part of um, one of our surveys for our patients to see how um, their experience is, you know, while they're in the hospital. And one of the areas where I've seen an increase on um, our unit is there's a question that asks the staff work together. And that's something that has really increased for us over you know, the last six months. And, and you can see it, it's great data and it really, really is applicable to the blended nursing, right? Um, you know, it says, does, did your staff work together? That's pretty, you know, pretty self-explanatory there. So that's definitely something that shows like, hey, people are taking notice that, you know, we're, we're building each other up. If it's, you know, while we're working together or when one nurse is coming off and one's coming on that, you know, they're still collectively working as a team and, uh, you know, the patients are seeing that. So um, from a patient perspective, we're seeing that. And then also from a, um, a staff perspective, uh, we, we have a little, um, we call it a kudos board on our unit. And it's just that the, the nurses will um, leave shout outs to their team for helping them. Um, and it's an idea I totally stole from somebody at a, at a meeting that like, I said, I love that. That sounds great. Uh, and I put it up uh, on our unit thinking, you know, I don't know how this is going to do. And it just totally took off and it's covered with thank yous. Thanks for helping with my assessment. Thanks for staying late with me. You know, thanks for doing my wound documentation. And it just, it, it really shows that the staff is loving each other, working together. And it's, it's just great to see. Have you gotten wondering, I mean, you think about that kudos board, have you um, my first question was going to be, you know, can you give an example of some things that people are putting up there? But I guess, have you heard feedback from folks who have been thanked, right? And they sort of, they sort of affirm that like, yeah, it's actually more meaningful than you might think to see my name up there and, and my colleague thanking me. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it's, it comes from the people that you really wouldn't expect to say, Hey, like, that, that really made me feel good. It, it, I'll throw things up there sometimes. And last week was nurses week. And I, I put a little blurb up there to say, you know, like, I don't even want to say thank you because it's just not even enough to explain what they're doing, you know, for me and for each other. You know, I recently took over this unit in, um, end of December. And so I, I was the assistant manager prior. And then I kind of popped in and I was like, all right, we're doing all this stuff, guys. Sorry to like drop it on you, but here it comes. And and just having them take hold of it and, you know, my, it's changed me, you know, being able to really have a team and, and I'm really thankful to watch them work together like this and um, welcome me uh, alongside of them. 
one last, one last thing I wanted to touch on before we wrap up is AHN's return to practice model. So I wonder if you could uh, describe a little bit about what that is and also um, maybe give some examples of how you've seen that play out. Sure, we started this back in 2017 because what we were realizing is that there, we knew that there are nurses, there are nurses out there that um, kept their licenses up, but they weren't practicing and they weren't practicing for a variety of reasons. We weren't, we in the hospitals haven't been super flexible with schedules. It's like 12 hour shift, 10 hour shift, eight hour shift or nothing. Um, and people have life that they need to live. They might need to raise their kids and they might want to put their kids on the bus and then be there when they get home. They may have parents that they're um, shuffling to appointments back and forth and things like that, that, you know, they can't work three twelves every week or things like that. We needed to meet those nurses where they are, not fit, in, not fit them into, you know, our little mold. So we created this program called Return to Practice, and we partnered with a, with a, a company called iRelaunch initially, and iRelaunch is a re-entry to work program uh, for, for those exact types of people in other industries, in STEM, in um, uh, banking, and things like that who have gone away from their career and wanted to come back into a career. And so we said, Let's do this for nursing. And I'd done that this at a previous organization where I was before. And I thought, I want to try this in Pittsburgh. I, I'm sure we can do it. And sure enough, we launched it. And we did a really soft launch because um, unlike where I was before in a different state, we had access to data that told us on their um, state nursing application, the state board of nursing said, this is, the, the, this is the group of nurses who are not working because on their license application, they check not working, but still licensed. And here's your, here's your pool of people. Um, we didn't have that pool of people for Pennsylvania, but we just advertised about it. We talked about it. Our recruiters talked about it, word of mouth. Um, the first year we got about 60 nurses to come in to do that. Now, if you've been away from practice for five minutes, you need to get refreshed because every five minutes things change. So we partnered with um, the University of Delaware because they had a very robust refresher course that are that people interested could do online, self-paced online, um, and it you know it assessed where they were if they've been out five years, if they've been out twenty-five years, and we did have nurses that range from being out for a couple of years up to twenty-five years want to come back. So they'd take that refresher course and we'd pay for it. Upon completing that refresher course, we would pair them up with a preceptor on a unit of their choice. And they could go to that unit of their choice and work with that preceptor and they got paid their hourly rate, which is a little bit less than our staff nurses because they didn't get benefits or PTO or anything like that. At the beginning of the program, we've revisited that a little bit um, just because of the staffing shortages and because it's the right thing to do. Um, so they would, they would partner and shadow with them. And then when they were ready to be independent, they were independent and they had the flexibility of working a minimum of two hours up to a maximum of 12 hours in a shift. And we could, there is not one time 24 seven that we don't need a pair of hands. And if somebody wants to come in for two hours, we've got something for them to do. <laughs> Mind you, this is a logistic nightmare yeah. for the nurse managers but when they need those staff, they do it. And I can tell you, it, 
I think going forward, we're going to make this a, a harder push um, because I know that since the pandemic, people have left and do want to come back. So, um, you know, Erin's got a lived experience where she's got return to practice nurses, and she probably has some of these experiences where it's worked and there's pros and cons of it, but we're, we're leaning into the pros. Yeah, so uh, we recently took on our first return to practice nurse, and he had been out of practice for four years. Um, so he actually like, took his boards, passed all that, I had started to work, but then family life was working for a family company. So, you know, some similar story to, you know, something outside kind of pulls you away. So he came back in and it was really nice because they, they start and almost like Claire said, it's like a, almost like a clinical again. So there, he was here eight hours a week over the course of, I think it was about 10 weeks. And then, you know, took his testing, did really well through that and then comes back onto the unit to orient just like any other nurse. And um, what we had found was we were expecting because he was a return to be like ready to go, you know, real simple orientation. And it, it just wasn't. And, and that was, that was a learning curve for us is he had to start from the beginning. Um, and that's fine. You know, we're used to that. It was just not, you know, something that we were thinking. So, um, but what he really liked about the unit was shameless plug for the blended nurse saying that how, how welcoming and how, how well of a team, you know, we were. So um, it was really good to see that. And, you know, from the beginning, him being able able to come in here and not feeling like he was alone or, or that, you know, like a fish out of water, because we, you know, had this assumption that he would be able to do things. We really, you know, gave him all the support that he needed, but let would let him fly when he was ready to. So I always like to wrap up these conversations by asking for one or two steps an organization can take to get started. So if I'm in a health system, and I've heard what you've said, and I'm, I'm ready to sort of take that leap, but I know that I probably am not going to get an entirely new staffing model set up by the next pay period. Um, where do I start to move in that right direction? Start with lunch breaks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> start start with lunch breaks. I, it sounds so silly, but it's so important. And, and it's something, it's an easy buy. It's look, the only thing I want you to do this week is go to lunch. That's an easy sell. Like, okay, we, we can figure this out. And in order for you to go to lunch, it's not my charge nurse that's assigning six different people lunch because that's the, the way it used to work is you're going at this time, you're going at this time because it doesn't work that way. You know, things change, patients, you know, get worse or, you know, something unexpected happens. So just encourage, okay, you three are working together today. Figure out how you're all going to go to lunch today. And it is very, very small, but it's something that they'll see and they'll like, and then they'll want to know more. Okay. What is this all about exactly? Cause now like I'm fed and I'm happy. Now I'm, I want to listen. So my piece of advice would be to engage your, engage your nurse leaders and your staff on what they think the solution is, because what you may think is a solution from, you know, I don't know, the nurse leader or whatever, it may not be, it may not be the right solution for that unit. And as a nurse leader, not one size fits all. Modify it to fit you. As long as you have the common goal, how you get there from your unit, you're the, C the nurse leaders are CEOs of their unit. How you get to that common goal is how you get to that common goal and make it interactive. Don't make it a top down make it a bottom up sideways in approach. And then I think you'll be successful. 
Aaron, thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks. You can learn more about ECRI and the ISMP PSO from the ECRI website at www.ecri.org, where you'll find our 2022 Top 10 Patient Safety Concerns Report, which includes staffing shortages as the number one item on the list. You can learn more about Allegheny Health Network at www.ahn.org. Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to get our latest episodes. We welcome your feedback. Please visit us at ecri.org or email us at ecri-podcasts at ecri.org.